We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Psalm 3. So we'll read in Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. The Psalm of David, it starts when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I pause just notice the contrast between verse 2 and verse 4. Many saying there's no help for God uh, for him and God and then it says in verse 4 and he heard from his holy hill. So indeed there was help wasn't there for David. Verse 5 I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of peoples who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. I recall that uh, there was a common chant that the people of Israel offered to Saul and David. And what did that say? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. That's because God was with him. Psalm 4. Hear me when I call. I'm sorry, I'll read the, um, the first part there. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Okay, that is, uh, those are in the Hebrew text and they make up verse 1 there in the text of Hebrew, but not in our English Bible. They're kind of verse zero, if you will. And so we begin then with verse one in our Bibles as it's labeled. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. How about if you read Psalm 3 and Psalm 4? Next time you're troubled, remember verse 5 of the 
third psalm, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. And here in verse 8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Indeed, amen. Some nights we might not feel like we're so much at peace when we lie down to rest, but may God give us that peace that will let us fall off to sleep and receive the, oh, refreshing nourishment and rest that our bodies need. That, by the way, is just an evidence of our weakness that we need sleep every day, we need nourishment, we need water all the time. It's just, uh, it's amazing. People just do it because it's a habit, but it really demonstrates to us that we are uh, needy people and depend on the Lord all the time. So, All right, Jansen, I think you're ready with the word. You've been working at it, so... Let's hear what God has taught our brother, and then after he's done around 7 o'clock or so, we will have the Lord's table. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this evening. We're not necessarily breaking away from our study through 1 Timothy for the Lord's table, not because it's not worthwhile doing, but I think because there is something in our text, or we could say many things in our text, that are applicable to the Lord's table uh, Maybe not so directly as if we were to teach through 1 Corinthians 11, but still applicable in the sense of as we approach the table, how we are to approach it, uh, pure, without spot, not perfect, but having confessed sin that is in our lives. But uh, So we will continue this evening right where we left off last time in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Thank you. I'll... Uh, try to catch those up who were not here last time on where we are because we're kind of picking up right in the middle of a section. Not what I typically like to do, but we ran out of time last time, and so we just kind of took a break there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, really in verse 12. But the section limits really begin in verse 11 and all the way through verse 16, and maybe your Bible kind of has that as a paragraph of its own with a little subheading above. My uh, my Bible has that. And in verses 11 through 16, we said this. It is really, I've titled this section, The Call to Persevere, because here in this section, Paul is teaching Timothy that in order to persevere, he must flee the destructive and self-serving motivations like that of the false teachers, which we looked at before in verses 3 through 10. Timothy must flee those kinds of things, the things like pride and greed that motivated them to teach false doctrine out of a self-serving kind of attitude. And so Timothy is to flee that and to pursue that which sanctifies. That is the call to persevere. Let me read verses 11 to 16. We'll briefly address the verses we looked at last time and then jump in at verse 12, the middle of verse 12, really. But beginning in verse 11, Paul writes this specifically to Timothy. This is addressed to him, although applicable to the rest of the church as well and to us today. He writes, But you, O man of God, referring to Timothy, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called 
and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Or truly. We looked at last time that the, in order to persevere, and this call to persevere, which was specifically aimed at Timothy as the minister there at Ephesus, trying to bring order to the church uh, because of the false teaching that was infiltrating the church and being propagated. Paul commands Timothy to flee these things, that is, those things which he just mentioned in verses 3 through 10, the things that had to do with the character of the false teachers, that they were prideful, that they created, uh, they created strife and arguments and disputes, evil suspicions and useless wranglings, to flee the kind of greed and love of money that motivated them to, to teach false doctrine. All those things, we could kind of package them up, those things, Timothy was being commanded to flee. And then we see this kind of second imperative here, which is pursue. So not only flee, but pursue. Pursue what? Well, the virtues that Paul mentions here, amongst more we could really gather from other places in Scripture, like the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about that or mentioned it last time. But among those, there are the things like righteousness, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. This is the second imperative in this section. Not only flee, but pursue those things which sanctify. And then Paul says in the beginning of verse 12, and this is kind of where we left off in the middle of verse 12, he says, fight. This is the third imperative we see in this section. So flee, pursue, and also fight. Fight the good fight of faith. To fight means to contend or struggle or engage in a contest. There's an athletic imagery going on here that Paul uses and has used in other places in Scripture to describe the believer's struggle against the world and against the flesh within the believer that at times causes you to stumble and to sin. And it's that fight that Paul is describing here and that Paul is admonishing or encouraging or commanding Timothy to engage in. And it's the command that we are to follow as well, to fight the good fight. Paul uses the word uh, fight to describe not only his personal life, that is his personal you know, faith in Christ, but also his ministry as well. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. And so it's likely here also that Paul's not just thinking of just the personal life, that is his personal salvation, his personal faith in Christ, but also the responsibilities that Timothy has in his ministry, 
The call to persevere both in his personal faith, but also in his, his divine call to ministry. Now you, we said last time, many of you or most of you are not in a, in a ministry setting, that is in a, a, an office like pastor, but you are called to a ministry of following Christ, making disciples, and, and in that area alone, you are called to persevere in addition to your personal faith in Christ. The believer, therefore, is in a spiritual warfare which results in a continuous struggle to persevere. You can attest to that, probably even from this past week, maybe even earlier today, that struggle to contend, to fight against the flesh. For Timothy, it meant uh, contending both in his personal faith, as we said, as well as his ministry. Outwardly, Timothy was in this uh, in this contest, was he not, with the false teachers? He was in conflict with Satan and his, his minions, as I like to call him, is the false teachers propagating that false teaching. While at the same time, Timothy must practice self-watch in his own life. And you too must practice that. In order for Timothy not to be disqualified from ministry... But as general, in general, for the believer, so as not to apostatize, but to persevere, continue, to work out your salvation, as Paul says, with fear and trembling. One, as we uh, mentioned this time, one author puts it this way, it's not just his ministry in regard to Timothy or just his personal life because he says, for the life and the work of the minister are inextricably bound together. They're tied together. They cannot be separated. Paul qualifies this fight as a good fight. It is a good struggle. He doesn't mean good in the sense of easy or necessarily enjoyable at times. That's not really what the word good means here. It means noble or excellent, a, a worthy struggle, a worthy battle. And so in saying that then, we know the Christian life is most definitely not a passive thing. It is an active thing. It's a, it's, you're, you're participating in it. Because it is a noble and excellent thing. We said last time, if you're simply just coasting in your Christian life, then you are not participating like you ought to. You're not fighting that good fight. In fact, you're probably not just sitting there in a kind of no man's land. You're probably moving backwards in your Christian life rather than moving forward. Flee whatever is causing you to coast and fight. That is, persevere in your faith. Do not stray away like the false teachers did and others who followed them down that path. And the fourth, then, imperative is reminiscent of the third. Timothy must also lay hold of eternal life. We see this in the middle of verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. The verb lay hold means to make it your own, to really grab a hold of it, to grab a hold of something, 
the, the NS, NASB conveys the idea of this personal responsibility when it says, it says, you take hold of it. You grab it. You take it as your own. What is the thing which Timothy is to lay hold of, to take hold of as his own? The text tells us, what is it? Eternal life. Eternal life. We said last time, Paul is not saying that salvation can be merited or laid hold of apart from faith in Christ. That's not the idea here. Salvation is only by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how it has always been. This command is for believers. It's not for the unbeliever to lay hold of eternal life. It's, it's for the believer. How do we know this? Because he says here, to which you were also called, past tense. So because you were called, Timothy, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but because you were called, therefore lay hold of eternal life. You see that? But what does it mean? How do we... How do we think about this in a practical sense? What does it actually mean to obey this command of lay hold of eternal life? It's, it's easy to think of in kind of theory and in theology and kind of an idea, but what does that mean tomorrow or tonight even to lay hold of eternal life? To lay hold of eternal life means to make every effort to persevere in the faith to make every effort to persevere in the faith. By persevering in his life and ministry, Timothy will then, at the end, once and for all, lay hold of eternal life, if he perseveres. And that is how we are to think of it as well, how we are to obey it as well. We are to persevere, meaning pursue righteousness, Godliness, that, those things which sanctify, that are evidences of perseverance in the faith. And by doing so, by doing that, we lay hold of, once and for all, eternal life. This does not mean that a believer cannot be certain that he has eternal life. Like, he has to wait until the end to, to be certain. It's not what Paul's saying. We believe because the scripture teaches that believers are eternally secure. They cannot lose their salvation. But it does highlight that there is a real struggle in the faith that requires us to keep our mind on eternity and not the things of this world. Maybe you've heard kind of the motto or slogan, someone being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Have you heard that before? That is simply false. A firm grip on reality, on the reality of eternal life, will cause you to be more good, to be of more value on earth in the sight of God than not. By being more heavenly minded, you're actually more earthly good. Because you understand why you're here, your purpose, what God has called you to, what, what lays ahead of you, what inheritance you have, such as eternal life. And so you live in that mindset. You persevere because you know that at, at some point in the future you will, you will receive that which you're laying hold of, eternal life. Paul goes on then to say, 
kind of give reasons why Timothy is to persevere, that is, lay hold on eternal life. Because he says, to which you were also called. The purpose for which Timothy was called is eternal life. Why lay hold of eternal life? Why persevere? Because you were called in order to receive eternal life. The call Paul refers to here is the, that effectual sovereign call, as we refer to it as. The effectual or sovereign call of God that results in salvation. When God calls someone in that way, they will be saved. They will respond to that call in repentant faith. We know this. Romans 8.30 speaks of this. And also in 2 Timothy 1.9. And Timothy had experienced that call in the past at some point. He had experienced this effectual calling to salvation, to eternal life. And if you believe in Christ... If you've made that profession, if you've responded because God has effectually called you, you too have experienced this, this call. Timothy not only was called to eternal life, but he also made a good confession concerning that, concerning eternal life, concerning believing in Christ, the one who gives eternal life. And Paul says this, to which you were, in in the middle of verse 12, he says, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy also made a good confession in reference to eternal life. In other words, the content of this confession which Timothy made was about eternal life, Or maybe we would say the source of eternal life, who is Christ Jesus. That confession made by Timothy, Paul doesn't say when it happened, but we might surmise that it took place at his baptism, or maybe his kind of ordination or commissioning. I'm not sure that Paul actually had one one place in time in mind. It may actually just be that confession which was made in the presence of many witnesses over the course of your ministry, perhaps beginning at his baptism, but even up to the present as he continued to share his faith. But baptism is a public proclamation or declaration of your faith in Christ. It's an opportunity for that. It is symbolic of Dying with Christ and being raised to new life. And there were likely many witnesses of that confession. One of the reasons we, at our baptisms, that we take a moment for someone to stand there and profess their allegiance to Christ is to proclaim that, that good confession, what they're believing in. It also gives us as witnesses assurance that, okay, they are, they are qualified to be baptized because they've professed Christ. You know, what hinders them then from being baptized? Well, nothing. If there's a clear profession or clear confession of Christ Jesus. Of course, in that sense, baptism 
is not only an act of obedience, it is that, but an opportunity to make this kind of good confession. Many times at baptisms, people invite friends and family to hear and to observe what they're doing, and it's an opportunity, it's an evangelistic opportunity to share the faith. Not so foolish to think that there's even at that moment people in the church who are attending who also need to hear that as well. Young ones or older ones who have not yet professed Christ. Of course, we can share our faith continually. It doesn't, I hope and pray we do. It's not just at our baptism that we make this good confession. And likely Timothy continued to do that as well. But a baptism is a pivotal point in our Christian walk. That we can look back on when we are perhaps doubting, discouraged, need encouragement to persevere and say, you know what, I look back and I remember I made a good profession. This is what I said I was believing, and I, and I do believe that. And there are people there that, that saw that and, and witnessed that. And they too can encourage me to persevere. And so I think that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's calling Timothy back to remind him of that good confession and saying this is the reason why you are to lay hold of eternal life, because you made that profession. So persevere. Don't give up, Timothy. Maybe one of us this evening or all of us need to hear that. Lay hold of eternal life because you made a good confession. You professed allegiance to Christ. Don't forget that. Paul picks up in verse 13, reiterating this commandment that's kind of packaged up in verses 11 and 12. And he says, I urge you in the sight of God, and let me skip to verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. The verb keep there in verse 14 is kind of the main verb. It, it, uh, it's broken up in verse 13 by this kind of parenthetical aside here, a remark. But do you see that connection? He says, I urge you in the sight of God to keep this commandment. And there's stuff in between that Paul speaks of, but that is the, the main command or the main verb here that's that kind of packages this together. Paul urges Timothy to keep this commandment without spot, to be blameless in regard to persevering. The command, as I said, is a bit broken because of the remarks he makes in verse 13, where he summons Timothy in the sight of God and before Christ Jesus to keep this command. He intensifies he elevates the importance of this by, by summoning him in the sight of God to keep this command. And this is not the first time Paul urges, urges Timothy before God. We saw this, maybe you'll remember, back in chapter 5, uh, verse 21. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. And that was in regard to the disciplining of elders. And so it intensifies the importance of obeying 
this command because he's, he's, he's reminding Timothy that what he does or fails to do will be seen in the sight of God. Of course, that applies to all of us. All that we do or fail to do is done in the sight of God and Christ Jesus as well. It's not hidden from God's sight. He sees all that we do or fail to do for him. Paul appeals to God, the one who gives life to all things. God is the one who is the giver of life. We know that. But the word can mean not only to give life as far as the originator of life, but also it can mean the one who preserves or maintains life. And that may actually be what Paul has more in mind here in regard as it, as it relates to persevering in the faith, persevering in his walk with God. God is the one who preserves you and maintains your life and causes you to persevere in the faith, to make it to the end. So he summons or urges Timothy in the sight of God who gives life to all things and also in the sight of the second person of the Trinity, Christ Jesus. And he describes this one, Christ Jesus, as the one who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. The word witnessed can mean testified. The one who testified the good confession before Pilate. Now, there's some debate on as to how this parallels Timothy's good confession in verse 12, because there seems to be a parallel here. He talks about Timothy giving a good confession and Christ Jesus testifying a good confession. So what is the parallel? Because there certainly is similarity, but yet there's differences between the two confessions. And without getting into all the debate of exactly how it parallels, I think one important parallel is this, that Paul is referring to Christ's confession concerning who he was. Remember when uh, Pilate questioned as to whether he is the king of the Jews? What is Jesus' reply? As you said, he is. Testifying that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the promised one. In that sense, it parallels Timothy's confession and parallels all of our professions, right? Professing that we believe that Jesus Christ is that, the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior. Undoubtedly, Jesus knew that by professing that, his demise was certain from the Jews who hated him. And yet he chose to, to admit that regardless. Timothy was instructed then to persevere without spot, to be blameless in his obedience to this commandment. In light of the fact that he has confessed the good confession, in light of the fact that he is doing this in the sight of God, who is the giver of life, 
and Christ Jesus, who also gave a good confession. In light of all that, Timothy was to keep this commandment, the commandment to fight, to lay hold of eternal life. And he was to do this maintaining a pure character, to be without fault in keeping this commandment. Of course, total perfection is not what Paul has in mind here, but a life that is above reproach, similar to 1 Timothy 3, where we talked about the the qualifications of a pastor. He is to be what? Blameless, above reproach. Same idea, same word here used in regard to Timothy's keeping of this commandment. He was to be above reproach in how he kept it, without not being tainted in his character and in his conduct. It speaks of an inward condition of a man. Inwardly, Timothy was to be above reproach. How different from the false teachers who maybe kind of walked you know, a good walk, so to speak, or talked a good talk. But inwardly, there was no, they were not blameless. They were not without spot. Timothy was certainly to not be like that, but to be exactly the opposite. And that's how we're to be as we keep this commandment. This isn't just for Timothy, you know, as if he could do it and we cannot. <laughs> no, by God's help. We can keep this commandment without spot, to persevere, to be above reproach in our conduct. How long do we have to persevere? How long? Paul tells us, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. Maybe that seems not too far away because you hope that the Lord will return tomorrow. Yet, we know it could be a while. It may be not even in our lifetime that he returns. But until then, Timothy, and likewise, we are to keep this commandment without spots. We do not know when that appearing will be. No man knows. We know the hour or the time. No one knows. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. It could happen at any time. But be encouraged, there is an end point to this struggle. The fight against sin will end when Jesus returns. And at that point, we will once and for all lay hold of eternal life. So, my friends, keep persevering until that time, whether it be his return or whether it be God taking you up out of this life to be with him, keep running the race. Paul then breaks into a doxology, which we read, describing the God who will make Christ known at this appearing. He is described as the one who is blessed and the only potentate. Potentate means one who is 
in a high position, a, a ruler or a sovereign. There are two qualifiers to God being the one who is sovereign. He is first the one who is blessed or blessed or privileged. That's what that means. He is the privileged sovereign, and he is the only sovereign. He is the only sovereign or ruler. God is the dynastic ruler of the universe, and he is pleased to also share that rulership with his son. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. God is the ruler of the universe. He is today. He will be in the future. He is also described as the king of kings and lord of lords. There are others who claim these titles, even in scripture. You see this in Ezekiel 26, 7 and Daniel 2, 37. But there are no other true capital King of Kings and capital L, Lord of Lords. He is the only one who can ascribe to be the King of Kings, sovereign over all lowercase kings, sovereign over all lower uh, lowercase lords, you know, rulers of kingdoms. He is the king of kings, lord of lords. He's also described as the one who has alone immortality. He alone has immortality. God is the only being in the universe who is self-existent and has life inherent in himself. Every other creature, every other human, every angel has life from God. He is the giver of life, as Paul has already said. He alone gives life, and he alone has immortality. He has life independently. All others are dependent on him for life. It makes sense, then, that he is the one and only one who gives eternal life. Who else can give that? Who else can offer that? Only the one who is immortal. Paul describes him as well as the one who dwells in unapproachable light. God is ultimately pure. There is no darkness in him, 1 John 1.5 tells us. The purity of God is unapproachable. Who can stand before him? Who can see him? No one, Paul says, has seen or can see God because of his purity. God's holiness separates him from man so that no one can, can totally stand before his glory, see him. Moses, of course, saw a glimpse of that glory, but could not see all of it. 
Interestingly, though, Jesus promises that those who are pure in heart will see God. Will see God. We look forward to that day when we receive ultimately the eternal life to be with him, to see him as he is. Finally, Paul describes him, or we should say ascribes to him all honor and everlasting power. All honor and everlasting power are his and his alone. In other words, Paul is saying, may God always be respected and may his rule never end. That certainly will be the case. Though he is deserving of all men's respect and acknowledgement of his rule now, not all will give it. But there will be a day when all men will bow and give honor to God. But what is keeping us who are the redeemed from doing that now? I hope nothing. Do you give God all honor, respect him? We're self-evaluating and are honest. There are areas where we do not honor him. Maybe at times we doubt his everlasting power. Can God really help me through this trial? Can God actually keep me eternally secure? Can God really help me to persevere? Yes, because he has that everlasting power. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because of the Lord's table this evening. Remember what Paul writes there concerning the eating of the bread and taking of the cup. He says we do this until when? Until he comes. We practice that ordinance But there's another command here that we're to keep until his appearing. The command to fight the good fight, to lay hold of eternal life. We must continually be engaged in that. Just like we continually practice the Lord's table to remember him, to remember his death, to remember the great sacrifice, his substitutionary atonement. My friends, I pray as we take the table this this evening that we would take it without spot, be blameless. Maybe you need to take even a moment now before we partake to confess areas of fault and ask God, help me to persevere, help me to fight, struggle, contend, help me to lay hold, to make it mine by contending for that faith. Engaging in that battle. Pray that you'll take a moment even now to do that. And as we as you do that, let me go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, I pray now that we would take up this command, though specifically given to Timothy, applicable to all of us. 
Lord, I pray that we have made that good confession at some point. Maybe there's some out there that haven't done that publicly because they have not yet been baptized. Lord, I pray that if that's the case, Lord, they would come to pastor. And, uh, Lord, maybe ask in this kind of way, you know, what hinders me from being baptized? And then they can talk through that and see if there be anything that would. And if not, Lord, they would take that step of obedience and make a good confession at that time publicly before many witnesses proclaiming that they believe in Christ Jesus, the one who gives eternal life, the source of eternal life. Lord, and now as we go to the table, Lord, may we humbly partake of it. Lord, may we take of it with a pure heart, without spot, being blameless. Lord, being thankful for what you've done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.